how a doctor presents this information to the patient is really important. A lot of patients, especially that I see for IBS or similar type syndromes, they feel like they've been kind of neglected to some extent, or the doctor said, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing else that I can really do. And so, you know, starting the relationship off by kind of like listening to the person's story, because, you know, I think you, seeing a lot of these folks like gives you a lot of humility, I think, because, you know, we don't know everything with regards to, you know, how things work in medicine. And even some of the discussions we've had right now with regards to the brain gut and the microbiome, there's a lot of complexity here, and we haven't characterized everything Hello, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Wellness, a podcast brought to you by the Columbia Association. I am Dr. Harry Oaken, a community physician for over 35 years and the medical director for the Columbia Association. I'm proud to be working with CA for over a decade to assist in their mission to improve the health and wellness of our community. It's my pleasure today to have my colleague and friend Brian Curtin here as a guest on finding your wellness. I've known Brian for a number of years, first as a resident in my teaching clinic at the University of Maryland. Dr. Curtin's specialty is gastroenterology and his subspecialty is neurogastroenterology and GI motility. Brian graduated from the University of Medical School, my alma mater, and did his residency where I met him at the University of Maryland. Brian also has a master's of health from Duke University, and he did, he did his gastroenterology fellowship at the University of Maryland, as well as NIH, and did a special motility fellowship at Augusta University Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia, which, by the way, is world-renowned for its clinical ex expertise uh, and research in GI motility. Today, we are talking to Dr. Curtin about irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS not to be confused with inflammatory bowel syndrome uh, that you may recognize as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, which is IBD. IBS is really a disorder of gut and brain interaction and is typically characterized by symptoms that include abdominal pain, bloating, and changes in the consistency of bowel movements. And these symptoms may occur over a very, very long time, sometimes for years, and can really affect the quality of your life. IBS is quite prevalent and varies from country to country. And in the United States has a prevalency rate of about 15% affecting many more women than men. And the aggregate costs for irritable bowel syndrome in the United States have been estimated in the billions. So Dr. Curtin, thank you for being here today and talk to us about IBS. First, let me just ask, what are the typical symptoms that you see for patients presenting with IBS? They've probably been referred by other physicians like myself uh, when you start seeing them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you so much for having me on, Harry. Um, yeah, IBS is, is definitely one of the, I think, and not just in the gastroenterology office, but I think in the primary care office, it's probably one of the more common pathologies and disease states that you see these days. In terms of just kind of giving an overview about irritable bowel. So irritable bowel syndrome is defined as a combination of chronic abdominal pain, um, usually you have to have an abdominal pain at least one day a week, combined with some sort of bowel habit and uh, bowel habit change. We typically uh, substratify IBS into sort of three different types. There's IBS-C or IBS constipation subtype, where patients usually will have kind of like harder, more firm stools, more less frequent bowel movements. There's IBS, uh, the diarrhea subtype, where they'll have more liquidy bowel movements. And then there's IBS-M, which is the mixed subtype. And these patients can sometimes have abdominal discomfort going back and forth between constipation and diarrhea. And a lot of times those are the hardest patients to treat because a lot of times our treatments are, uh, towards constipation can sometimes provoke diarrhea. 
and vice versa. So that's typically the types of symptoms you know that you're dealing with with IBS. And then of course, you know, presumably, you know, a lot of times when patients come in seeking uh, help for with regards to these symptoms, you know, sometimes they've already gone through a workup and making sure that, you know, there's not something like an inflammatory bowel disease, like you mentioned, is present is also an important part of, of making the diagnosis of IBS. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. The kind of alarm symptoms, which we really have to react to, even maybe it's the primary care officer, maybe you'll, you'll uncover these, the alarm symptoms that you concern yourselves with or what? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about alarm symptoms, you know, from like from when, a, when a doctor says alarm symptoms, or I use the term like red flag symptoms, these are the ones that, you know, potentially could indicate some sort of like life-threatening pathology typically. In the GI tract, the things that, you know, make me kind of go away from IBS more towards, you know, something needing to do a more thorough evaluation, blood in the stool is probably the biggest thing. So if somebody's having diarrhea and they're having kind of consistent bloody bowel movements, then you really need to at least check kind of a stool inflammatory panel, if not do a colonoscopy in order to make sure that you're not missing something like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Another alarm symptom is unexpected weight loss. IBS generally should not be manifesting with like, you know, and, and this is pretty dramatic weight loss, typically like, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, you know, with, with no changes in diet. That raises the concern of there being a possible, you know, sort of cancer going on. And so that person needs to be worked up a little bit more thoroughly. Other things, you know, include if there's, uh, you know, significant incontinence uh, of feces and not just diarrhea, but like if people are actually having accidents, um, you know, there might be a structural problem going on with the anal rectal area, severe nausea, vomiting, or trouble swallowing. Those are also things that need to be looked at. But I would say that in the realm of IBS, the biggest thing is the blood in the stool and the weight loss. Right. So I think that for us as primary care doctors and even for gastroenterologists, you know, patients may have these symptoms for a long period of time uh, by the time they decide to do something about it. And we have to be on our game to make sure that we've ruled out, as you said, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, cancer, and other causes. Because in the end, by the time we give somebody the diagnosis of IBS, whether it's constipation predominant or diarrhea predominant, we're reasonably assured that's what it is. And then we just have to look for remedies to make that better. We don't want to miss that. I think another thing to think about, I always think about this when I see middle-aged women come in with change in bowel habit and maybe bloating. I'm always thinking in the back of my mind not to miss ovarian cancer, uh, which can sometimes be a mimic. So I'm always thinking that. Like, I just don't want to miss that. And so a lot of times by the time a patient comes to you, They've had a scan, they've had blood work, they'd have a stool evaluation, and they may have had a couple of runs at remedies to try to make this better. And, and I would add that uh, endometriosis is also another big yeah. uh, mimicker. Um, I, I see a lot of patients who have, uh, you know, and endometriosis is, is kind of known as the great mimicker because especially in, in women, and, you know, sometimes women that have, have a tendency to have like kind of atypical presentations of certain conditions. We talk about like women having you know, chest pain and, and they have, they present with heart attacks a little bit differently than men do. And so, you know, endometriosis is something we always have to keep in the back of our mind as well. I totally agree. So after we've ruled out that it's not something worrisome, not that IBS is not worrisome because it's a terrible thing to go through your life with just every time you eat not feeling well or part of the week not feeling well. We now talk about this gut-brain axis phenomena and also its interaction with the microbiome. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that and how you see that? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating uh, how you know, the science about IBS has really changed over the last 20 years, because I think if you, you know, if we took a time machine, you know, 20, 25 years ago, 
and we talked to a lot of doctors about IBS, I think most people would kind of be settled on the sense that this is mostly a psychological condition that's related to, you know, stress, anxiety, you know, you, you treat those kind of things. And, and that was really thought to be the main driver of irritable bowel. You know, flash forward to today, and there's, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence nowadays that these disruptions within the microbiome, as well as within the gut brain, the, the access between the gut and the brain are both uh, contributing factors. To kind of expand upon that, with regards to the microbiome, so one of the things that um, has been noted, and I know that uh, Mayo Clinic and also Cedar sinai has done a lot of work on this, is the presence of something called SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which represents kind of a, a problem with too much bacteria collecting within the small intestine and then producing gas in response to sort of eating food. And they see, I have a pretty low threshold for testing for SIBO in patients who are having kind of irritable bowel syndromes because a lot of times antibiotics can be quite effective at treating those symptoms. The hypothesis behind uh, SIBO and, and, and behind the development of it typically starts with, you know, being some sort of a food poisoning event. In fact, a lot of people with IBS, a very common story that I hear in my clinic is that, you know, I was fine for, you know, so long. And then all of a sudden I got some sort of GI bug. You know, I was having diarrhea or having nausea vomiting for a couple, for a week or two. Uh, I recovered, but then all, you know, afterwards I then started having these kind of chronic problems with, you know, diarrhea or abdominal pain or bloating. And that was like very new to me. And so a lot of times the hypothesis is, is that, you know, the toxins from some of these bacterial enterites, you know, something like, you know, Campylobacter or something like um, Salmonella, your body forms antibodies to those toxins. And then as a consequence, it can also form antibodies to the gut wall itself. And so the thought process nowadays is that there's kind of an autoimmune component, uh, not quite as dramatic as like the typical autoimmune diseases we think about, like with like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, but that affects the way that the gut works specifically, especially when it comes to sort of, you know, housekeeping itself or, or moving along and, and performing motility. And so, you know, we haven't fully characterized this. I mean, this is still kind of incomplete information, you know, and we haven't gotten to the point where we can cure IBS, but it definitely, there's a lot of evidence about the microbiome specifically that there are modifiable causes um, that can improve patient symptoms for sure. And then going to the gut brain axis. So, you know, again, this kind of speaks to the fact that there is, you know, the, the way there's differences in the way that people sense their guts. I mean, this data is very old when they did studies where they would actually put a balloon inside the rectum and people with IBS and people without IBS. And they found that the people with IBS actually would feel these sense would reach their sensory thresholds a lot sooner than people without IBS. And so we know that there are different people have, you know, we all know somebody who has like a sensitive stomach, uh, but there's actually medical science that sort of backs that up as well. Some people just reach those kind of pain thresholds early on. And part of that has to do with the way that the, you know, the gut and the brain interact with one another. And there's neurotransmitters like, you know, acetylcholine and, and the dopamine and serotonin that are, that are implicated in that. And so we know that it's not just a matter of, you know, which was what before, like, you know, you're stressed, you're anxious, therefore you're having GI symptoms. Certainly stress and anxiety can, can uh, exacerbate these symptoms, but they're not the primary cause. The microbiome, dysbiosis, and then said these, these disorders of kind of a neuro, the neurologic functioning of the gut are really the kind of trigger points for irritable bowel. Wow, there's so much to talk about here. You know, first of <laughs> all, there really is, it's, and it's fascinating. I think one of the interesting things that you've seen and I've seen is when people get neurovirus, how some people, it's a six-hour event, and other people, it just goes on for months after the initial event. And one of the things that I've seen a few times is instead of lower tract disease, when we're talking about the lower colon and the small intestine, you sometimes see it affect the upper tract with this dysfunctional dyspepsia. It's fascinating. And I think that 
in addition to the autoimmune phenomena of making antibodies to the gut wall, I think there's probably, I think you probably agree, there's some damage to the neurons themselves by the infection, whether it's viral yeah. or bacterial. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as I said, the, the, the actual characterization of this, I think we're still kind of putting the pieces together with regards to that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the most common conditions I get referred to in addition to IBS is gastroparesis, which is a condition where the stomach functioning is impaired. And a lot of those patients, you know, the traditional risk factors for gastroparesis were uncontrolled diabetes or some sort of surgical injury where the vagus nerve was injured. But honestly, most of the people that I see with gastroparesis nowadays, either they don't have an inciting event or some, some of them will have that kind of very specific story or date where they had this kind of infection and then they developed it afterwards. And that affects not just the emptying of the stomach, but also kind of the perception of the stomach, the accommodation, which is the ability of the stomach to kind of stretch and accommodate food. We've made very little progress on the treatment of a lot of these conditions like functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis over the last 40 years because the, the pathophysiology is just so complicated and it differs from patient to patient that it's really hard to have a one-size-fits-all approach to these kind of uh, cases. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I think along the neurologic clause, there's some interesting work that I've seen where people, particularly for upper tract disease, have their the neurologic milieu sort of adjusted after they eat spicy food. And mm -hmm. after they have spicy food, there's this reduction of a known neurotransmitter called substance P. And then for a period of time, everything quiets down until that substance P builds up. In fact, I think there's been some studies using capsation capsules, which is the same ingredient that we use, for instance, when people have shingles and mm -hmm. we're trying to quell their pain, we put capsation paste over that area and we get transient relief of the uh, herpes pain uh, by actually reducing the amount or, of substance P that gets elaborated by the neurons. So it's all just very, very fascinating. So we've identified, we've ruled out all the bad things. We believe this, our patient has irritable bowel syndrome. And you talked about already how this brain-gut connection and the different neurotransmitters, uh, such as dopamine and serotonin. And I think one of the things that's sometimes used for this are uh, antidepressants like serotonin uptake, uh, reuptake inhibitors, et cetera. Um, could you comment a little bit about that? And I think it speaks to what you, what you mentioned to before, which in the old days, we just call this, oh, this is in your head. It's called spastic colitis. Let's reduce your stress and you'll get better. But we now know a lot more. Yeah. And I think that, you know, how you, you know, how a doctor presents this information to the patient is really important. Um, you know, a, a lot of patients, especially that I see for IBS or similar type syndromes, they feel like they've been kind of neglected to some extent, or the doctor said, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing else that I can really do. And so, you know, starting the relationship off by kind of like listening to the person's story, because, you know, I think you seeing a lot of these folks like gives you a lot of humility, I think, because, you know, we don't know everything with regards to, you know, how things work in medicine. And even some of the discussions we've had right now with regards to the brain gut and the microbiome, there's a lot of complexity here. And then we haven't uh, characterized everything. And even the way we use some of the medicines you talked about, the antidepressant medicines, like it's, it's always a little bit of a uh, trial and error game with regards to uh, treating for that. The, the basis behind it is that 
you know, in general, if there is a problem with the gut-brain axis, the way you get symptoms, like whether you feel pain or whether you feel bloat or whether you feel urgency to go to the bathroom, that neurologically is mediated by these little neurotransmitters, which are, you know, throughout the GI tract. And your GI tract has its own nervous system, you know, that's kind of even independent of your central nervous system. And so small doses of these, ner these nerve medicines, whether they're affecting serotonin, whether they're affecting norepinephrine, they can sort of attenuate or block um, some of these signals. And so, for example, I use commonly tricyclic antidepressants, uh, which are really helpful for reducing pain. And a lot of times reducing urgency, especially somebody with IBS, the diarrhea subtype, they can be really helpful. Now, obviously these medicines have a little bit more side effects um, compared to a lot of the other medicines that we use. So we always have to kind of start low. We have to sort of educate the patients about what kind of side effects they might have. And also, I think that being clear that, again, I'm not sort of like, it's not that I'm, you know, I think you're depressed and therefore you're having diarrhea and I'm treating you for that. It's because I'm trying to take advantage of the, the mechanism of action of these medicines that can then have effect on the GI tract itself. Right. There's the science in it. And I think that's such an mm -hmm. important communication tool to be able to say, this is not in your head, but what's going on is affecting your head. Okay. Yeah. And having, and I, and also as we've seen in patients that we've had together, just small little doses, for instance, of the tricyclic amitriptyline can have a profound effect on what's going on here. Yeah, that, those are all really, really interesting phenomena. The, now, there's other things that you use besides antidepressants. Uh, plus, we haven't even spoken about diet yet. Yes, yes. And that's an important component as well. So I, I think a lot of people are familiar with um, the low FODMAP diet. I think if you, if you know anything about IBS, so the low FODMAP diet essentially is a lower fermentation uh, type diet. FODMAPs are basically big bulky sugars, oligosaccharides, polysaccharides that are found in foods. So some of the most common, like really high FODMAP foods include things that have a lot of high fructose corn syrup in it. Um, a lot of the wheat kind of products that have like gluten in it will also have a sugar called fructan. Um, which can also be, and these sugars are really difficult for your system to digest. You can't just for, you know, fructose, fructan or for, um, for milk sugar, you can't just absorb these directly into your intestine. You need to have enzymes that basically kind of cleave these things into smaller sugars that then you can absorb. And so when your system has to, you know, spend a lot more time processing it, it can produce more gas and then it can cause more issues with bloating. It can cause more issues with bowel habit changes. And so the low FODMAP diet is one that actually has evidence behind it that can be really helpful. Now, I also make very liberal use. I have a dietitian that works with me. And so a lot of patients, you know, even though they've seen like many GI doctors, they come to me, I, I find a food intolerance in them. And then it's really the dietitian that made the biggest uh, difference for them. And if they, you know, stopped eating certain types of foods, they can get a lot better. And they didn't necessarily need, you know, the million dollar workup out of that. So diet is definitely a big uh, component of these symptoms too. Well, let's, while we're talking about that, let's talk a little bit about probiotics and the utility mm -hmm. of probiotics in IBS. Yeah. So, you know, and, and this is a question that comes up very commonly in the clinic. And the thing is, is that we can get so much information. You know, a lot of times patients go out and they will, you know, through their own resources, get these kind of, you know, GI maps, where you can get all this information about your stool culture, about your microbiome. And the problem is, is that, you know, we don't have the knowledge yet to sort of micromanage the microbiome, so to speak, in a way that can be really meaningfully cause symptom relief. There are a couple of situations where probiotics can be helpful, um, you know, like antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And a lot of doctors will use probiotics in, empirically, and they're not generally unsafe to use. But the data hasn't gotten to the point where they're generally recommended, especially when it comes to constipation. A lot of people will be taking uh, probiotics for constipation, and there's very little data that probiotics help in that sort of situation. So, you know, it's always worthwhile talking to your doctor. And again, especially for the diarrhea subtypes, you know, probiotics can sometimes be helpful, but the data on it is, is very mixed at this point in time. So it's not usually something that I reach for right away. 
Let's talk, you already mentioned a little bit about this, which I think is another really interesting up-and-coming area, and that's the use of antibiotics for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, and I think that the biggest antibiotic um, development over the last uh, decade or so has been rifaximin, um, you know, and uh, this kind of gets back to the idea about the SIBO, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and that a lot of the IBS uh, can be directly linked to either the production, uh, the excess production of hydrogen or methane within the system. And so rifaximin, as well as other antibiotics, have been used to try to at least uh, get the get the uh, overgrowth in the small intestine uh, under control. Most doctors don't have access readily available to breath testing to actually see whether or not somebody has SIBO or not. So I would say most people just kind of empirically prescribe rifaximin. It can be very helpful for some people, and some people will get benefit even for years with even a small dose of antibiotics, but there are other people that they get a benefit fit and they come back. And that's where, you know, having the additional tests like the breath testing, which can look for bacterial overgrowth, or sometimes I'll do actual cultures of the small bowel where I'm looking to see what kind of bugs are growing there. Um, so I can sort of more personally tailor the antibiotics to that. You know, and again, it's, it's hard to, one of the things with IBS is that it's really hard to get complete resolution of symptoms. And I, I'm very upfront about that with patients at the very beginning when I see them is that, you know, if I can get you like, you know, even 70 to 80% better, that's a big win. Because uh, a lot of times this is a chronic condition that's managed, it's not cured. And so if we can get you with a significant improvement and antibiotics are a tool and the, the antidepressants or neuromodulators can be a tool and diet can be a tool. And you know, a lot of times we attack this from various different angles. Uh, if I can get you to significant better where this isn't impacting your quality of life, you're not missing work, you're not you know, afraid to leave the house, you're not afraid to go to a social gathering. Like that's a big win in my book. Talking a little bit about small bowel overgrowth. I mean, classically, the small bowel is shouldn't have any bacteria in it at all, right? Or very, very limited. Limited bacteria. Limited bacteria. Yeah. Sometimes there are certain types of medicines that can predispose to getting this, like acid blockers, for example. I um, mean, you know, a lot of people take like omeprazole or Nexium for for reflux, and so you know one of the reasons that uh, one of the ways your gut protects itself is by you know having acid in the stomach. So blocking the acid can sometimes predispose to too much bacteria uh, within the small intestine. We talked about how you know sometimes if uh, you know somebody gets a GI infection and forms those antibodies to the gut wall, that's going to affect what I call the housekeeping function of the gut wall. So, you know, while you and I are talking here, our guts are constantly in motion, trying to maintain the microbiome inside the small bowel and in the colon. And if the, the housekeeping function is impaired, you know, your gut changes from kind of like a free-flowing river into sort of more of a stagnant swamp where things can kind of collect. You know, and as I said, that's why it's more of a chronic issue because it's really hard to completely reverse that process once it's happened. But antibiotics can be a useful tool to kind of uh, get it under control. And then the dietary changes with like the low fermentation diet that we talked about, a low FODMAP diet, the bacteria love those really like bulky sugars, those really easily available sugars. And so reducing those in your diet will means that there's less gas production. And that's another way to sort of manage that condition too. Right. Less gas, less bloating, less discomfort, less diarrhea. Now, with rifaximin we talked about, which is sort of the first line, unfortunately, it happens to be an ex very expensive uh, antibiotic that's sometimes difficult to get covered by uh, health insurance. But there are other antibiotics we can try that are that are not as expensive, right? I've used in the past doxycycline uh, and uh, and and others, right? Do you yeah, I mean, I think that my go-to would probably be Augmentin, which is a penicillin agent. Augmentin also has the added benefit of it has a mild prokinetic effect on the small bowel. Right. Um, so if you think especially that there's a mild dysmotility, Augmentin is a great agent. It's a, it's a substitute and it's fairly broad spectrum. So it's going to, uh, you know, it is going to be able to kind of cover most of the things that you're going to be worried about. A lot of people have been using Flagyl for this for a long period of time. Back in, you know, 50 years ago, you know, people would treat Flagyl a lot of times for, you know, they would check a stool culture for 
something like Giardia, um, but a lot of doctors still empirically treated with that uh, and they found a lot of benefit with it. So, you know, metronidazole or flagell is another option that's been used quite a bit too. And then the final one is, is neomycin. And that's one that's been, if you look at a breath test, you know, some people will have uh, elevation of hydrogen. That's the most common type, but others, especially constipated patients may have an elevation in methane, which is produced by a different type of organism. And that respond, that's a little bit harder to treat with antibiotics, but neomycin is the antibiotic of choice for those uh, methane producing organisms. So in recalcitrant patients that are not doing well, that breath test can be very helpful in the good selection of that antibiotic that's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, people can get into a little bit of the weeds with, um, uh, you know, because people will treat them empirically, which, you know, if it works great, but I mean, if it works and they come back and, you know, you don't necessarily want to be giving somebody antibiotics over and over and over again forever, especially with no end goal in mind. So using the data from the breath test is really helpful because it, it tells me whether or not, you know, should I give another course of antibiotics or do we need to maybe start talking about the neuromodulators or we need to talk about diet more um, specifically. One point I wanted to mention to you is, you know, we used to say IBS almost always started before about the age of 45 or 50. And if you had IBS symptoms and you never had them before, that is a an alarm, an, a red flag, as you called it. But now I think we see all of this post-infectious IBS. We can see it in anybody. We oh, just yeah. want to make sure that there's no red flags. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, IBS can affect uh, really anyone of any age, especially if you get the post-infectious version. I mean, that can, I, I've seen people develop it even in their 80s at times. Now, obviously, you have to be a little bit more sensitive to, you know, somebody who is, you know, over the age of 60, starting complaining of all of a sudden GI symptoms, I'm much more likely to do like a colonoscopy or an upper endoscopy on somebody who's 65, who all of a sudden says, hmm, my bowel suddenly changed on me, because the chances that that person has something, you know, like a cancer or something other you know, big bad is, is higher than somebody who's, you know, like 25, for example. But absolutely, you can develop IBS at any age. Well, this has been a great discussion. We've covered a whole lot about IBS, and I hope it's been helpful to our audience. So Brian, it's been my pleasure to have you as a guest today. Thanks to you and to the audience for listening. This is Dr. Harry Oaken for the Columbia Association sponsored Finding Your Wellness podcast. And you can tune into our podcast on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.